0: Gonna, if you're going to propose marriage to somebody, you typically have a plan, right? You're like, okay, I'm going to go to the restaurant. I'm going to have the ring brought with the dessert, right? And you have an idea of what you're going to say, right? It's I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell this person how much I appreciate them and, and how special they are to me and maybe you know relive the moment that we met. And then I'm going to pop the question. But what you don't do is pull out a piece of paper and go, all right, Kate. We have been dating for seven years and you are very special to me, right? You don't just read a script.
1: That's how I did it. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Building a successful real estate career requires you to adapt, pivot, and constantly master new skills. Welcome everybody to a special live version of Level Up. And this week we've got a very special guest. I'm pretty excited. I haven't even I haven't even confirmed this or the pronunciation of your last name. So I'm gonna I'm gonna refer you refer to you as Julian R.
0: There you go. Perfect. Yeah. It's actually easier than it looks. It's wreck scene. Think destroy scene around oh. and you've got it wreck oh. scene, right? And that's the easiest way to pronounce it. So, well, we
1: well, get, you know, Rico is our, is our real estate governing body here in Ontario. So yeah. the first four letters are, so it's yeah. wreck scene. Great. So I want to welcome Julian to level up. Uh, this is going to be a pretty cool session where we're talking all about getting in people's heads or just knowing a little bit more about what people are thinking in the sales world. Julian has over 20 years of experience working with sales teams training sales teams helping form uh, I guess sales forces in different organizations across North America you were just telling us you did a lot of work in Montreal you're bilingual which many of us in Canada can't even say so good good on you but you're you're in Florida right now so we are uh, really thrilled to to have you and uh, welcome to welcome to the program.
0: Thank you. Great to be here. The bilingual thing is less impressive because I'm originally French and I'm an immigrant to the U.S. about 35 years ago. So I, you know, I had to pick up English when I moved to the U.S. I didn't have much Mm. of a choice. And French is my is my first language.
1: Very cool. Yeah. So so, why don't you, I know I gave a very, very abridged version of who you are and what you do, but yep. you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, yep. your company
0: and all that. Yep. Stuff. So I, I, uh, I, I started uh, in sales uh, kind of by accident, like a lot of people do. You know, you get a job and you're like, oh, I'm not sure I can do sales. Uh, in my case, I interviewed in a newspaper to be a writer. And they offered me employment and told me to show up on Monday. And when I showed up on that Monday, they handed me a rate card and said, you're in the advertising department, go sell some ads. That was the sum of my sales training, right? So <laughs> uh, I, I basically had to kind of figure out a lot of things. And I became um, very early on in my career, uh, somewhat obsessed, uh, addicted, whatever you want to call it, to going to sales trainings and listening to, and this is how old I am, cassette sets in the car um, on sales thing. I actually am one of the few people who had my – um, my CD player removed from a new car and a cassette player put in, cause I had all, I had all my materials all my Brian Tracy and all that other stuff, my Zig Ziglar stuff. It was all on cassette and I wanted to be able to listen to it in the car. Um, and, and, you know, over the course of my sales and sales management career, I get, became more and more drawn to the training side, um, because I loved Uh, I think the impact that you can have when you can get a larger versus just impacting your sales when you can impact a a larger organization and because sales is so often misunderstood and done wrong. um, And and a, a good chunk of that is Hollywood's fault. If you think like, you know, the coffee is for closers and always be closing and the tin men and all that sort of, you know, deceitful and manipulative and, and kind of, and, and a lot of people think that sales and it's, it's really not. Um, and I'm a big believer that sales drives the world, right? We would all still buy lighting ourselves by candlelight. If, you know, Edison's sales guy had not said, hang on, hang on. I, I got a better idea, right? We need, we need, we need to put this in the hands of people. Um, so you know we tend to be limited in our thinking and everything else, and salespeople are the ones that help us kind of figure out what's broken or what could be improved and how to improve it, and they do that with off the profit motive. And I'm a big believer that it has a huge impact. So it's uh, it's more than just a job for me; it's really kind of a calling. I really adore this, and I hate seeing sales done wrong. And I know we all are regular victims of it when we get those phone calls, and you're just like, how quickly can I get this person off the phone? And, uh, and sometimes they even have something of value to offer, but the, the pitch is so clumsy that they, they don't get past the human behavioral you know, neuroscience defense mechanisms. They, they don't get past those. And so they never get a chance to have that, that compelling piece. So I went into training and then over the course, uh, you know, uh, hung my own shingle a company called Sales Fix, uh myself and a, and a business partner. And we drop into organizations like Groupon, Canon Solutions USA, as well as a whole bunch of small startups or, you know, companies behind the scenes that you haven't heard of and Um, Typically, your your sales management is people who are really good at sales and got promoted and got given no training in being a sales manager or sales trainer. They're like, hey, you could sell really well here. Get 10 other people to do it. Right. So um, and and there is a science to it. There absolutely is a lot of science at play in the sales interaction. And if we see it and we know it's there, it's literally like sailing the ocean with a map of where the reefs are versus just sailing around in the fog and bouncing off of rocks in, in order to discover that they're there. Um, so, SalesFix. If I have a, a free weekly blog, if you uh, want to get an email in your email box, it, it's found on the website. It's a sales fix with two X's. And then I also do a podcast. None of those are paid services. It's all just content that I put out there, um, where I bring people onto that podcast as well, and we have conversations about sales. So, you know, um, as one of my neighbors' daughters told me, she said, "Hey, Mister Julian, it's really cool that you have a podcast. I listened to an episode." I hope you won't take it this the wrong way. I fell asleep while I was listening to it. I'm like, you're not in sales, so it's okay, right? But if you're in sales, you won't fall asleep listening to that or, you know, typically listening to the, the material. And, and it's not, I really aim for stuff that's not anybody's opinion or or approach as much as really anchoring off the science. Because I think if we do that, we have a stable foundation that we can build our sales interactions on.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. In, I mean, in real estate, we find a lot of times we we, we do get scripts and they tend to be quite um, contrived, quite. And, and I think like when I started in this business 12 years ago, I feel like those scripts might have worked a little bit better as now. I feel like consumers are a lot more just savvy and know yeah. what to look out for. And those like, yep. you know, typical closing questions aren't just going to fly. So yep. like, how have you seen that progression in sales and in terms of scripting? Because I think scripts are important to just kind of rely on and kind of make them your own. But how have you seen that progression happen in terms of buyer behavior? And yeah.
0: Reaction? So the terminology I like to use is a talk track because I think okay. a script misdescribes it, right? A script mm-hmm. is something that you read. The words are all chosen for you. You can't insert your own personality, your own vocabulary, vocabulary into it. Um, versus a talk track tells you, hey, I have a plan for this conversation. I want to hit these things in these sequences. But it's the tracks on it's, it's more like bullet points maybe is maybe a better way to look at it. So um, I think that's how it's evolved more and more right now. That said, I still regularly get called by the landscaping company that takes care of my property. And they try to sell me stuff like treatments on my bushes, and there are no bushes on my property, and they should know that because they're here once a week, right? So I still see a lot of organizations, and what that reflects to me is an approach where I don't trust my salespeople, so I'm gonna script them instead of saying I'm gonna train my salespeople to be good listeners and I'm gonna give them talk track guidance, a process on where to go, right? That's the evolve move, is is. I'm not going to say free for all. I'm going to have we're going to have a we 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 have a plan for this conversation, but I'm not going to script it. And the the typical example I tell people is if you're going to if you're going to propose marriage to somebody, you typically have a plan, right? You're like, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going to go to the restaurant, I'm going to have the ring brought with the dessert, right? And you have an idea of what you're going to say, right? It's I'm going to I'm going to tell this person how much I appreciate them and and how special they are to me and maybe, you know, relive the moment that we met and then I'm going to pop the question. But what you don't do is pull out a piece of paper and go, all right, Kate, we have been dating for seven years and you are very special to me, right? You don't just read a script.
1: That's how I did it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) And the the science behind that is is there are actually two different parts of the brain that are lighting up. When we read, it's a different part of the brain that's functioning than when we speak. You want the conversational brain to kick in. How do you do that? Bullet points, a path, a process, a talk track but the words are forming conversationally naturally because they're not scripted and that's how we so to me the, the the big evolution there is get away from the script but don't go all the way in the opposite direction where the conversation becomes a free for all because then what's going to happen the prospect is going to take over the conversation and now now you're in chaos right you're in their system and things start to derail from there
1: Absolutely. And uh, we're going to keep asking questions. But as always, to everyone who's watching, jump in at any point. We're keeping an eye on the questions you've got as well. Um, So when you step into a a new client situation or you're consulting with somebody new, what's the first step in sort of diagnosing where they're at in order to determine what they need?
0: I go talk to the salespeople first and foremost. And then I listen to the sales conversations. So nowadays it's a lot easier than it used to be because most organizations are recording their calls. They're using services like, you know, the, all the ones that are out there, Gong, Refract, all those systems that are out there that are great. Um, and, and they're recording conversations. So typically as we're setting up the sort of assessment step with clients, I'll listen to between 30 and hundred hours of calls and I'll start to spot patterns. And then I'll go back to the client and say, why do people say this? Why do they ask this question? Why do they not ask this question over here? Why don't you guys qualify for time on your prospecting calls, right? So And so I'll get a sense of where they are and what they believe. And the reason I start with the sales conversations is because typically management has one version in their head of what's happening. And then there's a differentiation between that and what's actually happening on the calls. Um, the old school way to do that back in the day before we were all you know isolated in our houses and, and, uh, and not able, was to just go on calls with a lot of reps. And th- that still happens in organizations. But the first thing is to spot, not the one-offs, but what is being said consistently. And then when you can start to analyze the data, what are the top performers saying? What sequence are they saying it in? How are they organizing and planning out their conversation? What's the rest of the pack doing and what are the differences between those two elements? That typically shines a pretty clear light on, okay, this is what we need to work on. And it's very often not why I was invited in. So very often the first thing that I end up working on with his clients is they say, hey, we really need your help to come in and help us with this. And when we go through that first step and analyze, we realize there's a couple of other things that are actually more urgent to address or more foundational that we want to address before we actually step into kind of you know what gave them the idea that they needed to you know bring somebody in or look at this again.
1: Mm -hmm. Is is it a global approach you take? Like let's say it's an organization of 20 salespeople on the floor. Mm -hmm. And I know in in our industry, I mean every person who's in real estate is an entrepreneur effectively. Like most Mm -hmm. people here are their own business. And there are different types of people, different success stories. From the way people are able to sell as individuals. So when you walk into an organization, their goal as an organization is to sell more and to get more clients and all that and sort increase revenue. But do you find that your approach might be different from person to person? Or do you try to instill a this is the roadmap that seems to make the most sense for everybody based on what I'm hearing?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's it's a great question because very often, you know, salespeople don't want to be scripted, right? And entrepreneurs even more. That's one of the reasons they're entrepreneurs, is because they don't want to fit into like, you know, somebody's system, so to speak. So there's a balancing there, right? There's a there's there, there's a dichotomy there that you've got to kind of weigh on both sides and balance. And the and the one op one option is total chaos, the option is you know, being totally scripted. And again, that's where I'll differentiate because typically it's there are some things. That need to be in a sales conversation, or you're going to have a really hard time prospecting, right? So let's take the obvious one. If you're doing sales, and you're not doing some kind of discovery or needs assessment, you're going to try to sell the, you know, the the sports sedan to somebody who's got three kids, or you're going to try to sell the two bedroom house to somebody who's got nine kids, like you didn't do the first step of understanding your client, right? So might be slightly different industry to industry. It's definitely going to be different, you know, um, even sometimes within departments within the same company. But ultimately, at some point you go, we know this is an essential piece. Where does it fit? How do we frame it up? And how do we wrap it up? Right. And so then you string together your sort of chain of events. So the classic corporate sales ladder is something along the line of cold call, attempt to set the appointment, setting the appointment holding the uh, appointment, which is two steps, needs assessment, and then presenting the solution. And then there's some kind of, you know, commitment to action, send proposal, get proposal back. Right. So, and every company, you have to kind of figure out what that sequence looks like and then tell everybody your style can be reflected individually. But if you skip steps in the sequence, you're not leveraging the psychology of why that step is there. And then reps come back and say, it's really weird. I send out a lot of proposals And a lot of people just never get back to me. They just sit out there. They don't say no. They don't say yes. Okay, okay. let's go back to your appointment set and look at what you're doing there and how you're setting expectations. Oh, you're not doing that. Guess what? That's what fixes that problem, right? So you can always kind of tie it back to, and that's why listening to the calls is really important because based on where the pain is for the person doing the actual selling, whether it's prospecting or preset appointments, where they're running to the obstacle typically points to what's missing in the psychology of that standard ramp up. And last expansion on this thought, but the we we all recognize that this psychology is there. We just think for some reason sales is exempt. And this is the piece that's always shocking to me from a psychological perspective is you go, would you go up to somebody in a bar and approach them and talk to them the way you just talked to this person on the phone, right? Like the marriage proposal example. And they're like, no, of course not. Why not? Well, because they would do this. uh, You're still dealing with a human being. At the end of the day. It's not one company selling another. It's not a house being sold to a corporation. It's not. At the end of the day, it always comes down to two human beings having a conversation. So all that human psychology is there. And if you start skipping steps of what science has been telling us for decades is existing, you're going to start falling down. You're going to start hitting obstacles. You're going to, you know, your conversions are going to slow. Uh, you, You need to understand what those steps are and be able to level that same playing field to accomplish ultimately the goal, which is, this is not me trying to convince you of something. This is a discovery to see if you have a problem that I can help solve, and that's the that's the big myth in sales. Oh, you guys are great at convincing people. The best salespeople do almost no convincing. They they do almost no closing. They find people. They have a quick conversation to qualify them. They help them identify that pain. They match the solution to it, and then they stand back and watch the prospect close themselves. Right, mm-hmm. it, and that's 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 really. And you've seen that in real estate, I'm sure. Right, people walk in. You're like. I nailed it. I understood them. I showed them the right house. I don't have to argue with them about, you know, what the first bid should be or everything. They want the house at this point because I match their needs and their wants correctly to the solution that I presented.
2: That's a really good point. Because I'm even thinking about, you know, a lot of agents do go through an online lead system and, and try to call a bunch of people. And, and I think a lot of us just try to rush through it to like because you want to get to the point. You don't want to waste their time. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, if you're going right to the point, that's probably turning off most people. And they're just going to do they just want the information and to move on and not to really have that connection with you. Um, So I think that that's really important to remember for us as as agents when we're going Mm -hmm. to into a listing presentation or even somebody coming into an open house to see the house. It's about taking that step back and really understanding, okay, what, like, you know, what brought you here, what kinds of home, like what, what really interests you in a home and all those kinds of things. And that, that really helps to, as you said, like match up what they're really looking for. Um, So in terms of, I guess that first step, when you are getting on on a call for the first time with, with a potential prospect, let's say if it's real estate related, if it's, let's say mm-hmm. a seller or a buyer trying to convince to get that appointment, um, You know, is it just about the listening or how how can we kind of turn the conversation? Because I feel like sometimes we either go in completely one direction where it's like, I just want to connect and have conversation and become your friend. But then it's hard for people to kind of move to that next step of of getting that appointment. So do you have any tips on how to make that progression?
0: Yeah. So the first piece is you don't want to be their friend, right? They have friends. You want to be friendly. You want to be polite. You want to be friendly. That's great. But typically, when, when a salesperson is trying to become a prospect's friend, the prospect starts to get this, like, you know, icky feeling of emotional blackmail. Like, you're going to befriend me, and then I'm going to have to buy out of obligation. And that's what causes them to kind of, like, start creating resistance almost immediately. So uh, the, set, the, the, the mission, first and foremost, is to understand the buyer's motive. Why is it that they're looking, right? So you, I'm a real estate agent. I get an inbound lead. Hey, we want to look at some houses in the upper Glendale area. Okay, great. Here's the question that I often see skipped in this exact scenario. Why? What are, you, are you moving in from out of town? Is your, is your current house too small? I mean, think about like just saying, what are you looking for? And why are you moving, by the way, right? Simply asking questions like that. So in my world, when a VP of sales calls me and says, I think we need some sales training. My first question is not great. I've got a ton to sell you. I go, why? Why do you think that? And then I actually start to pull on the rope and create tension in the opposite direction. So I almost make them convince me that they need sales training. And I throw doubt. We're like, well, why don't you just have your managers do it? What, what, what's, well, don't you have a VP of sales? Why, why, why aren't they just, there's a ton of stuff online you can download. Why aren't you just getting that stuff? And what happens by the end of that conversation is they essentially do my job for me of knocking down the obstacles that are going to be in the way to getting, some kind of decision. Now that doesn't mean they're going to buy automatically, but they're already proving to me that their commitment is real, right? So if I translate it to the real estate world, and my wife and I are house flippers, so I know more about real estate probably than you know your 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 mo- most people who aren't a real estate agent, but. You know, when when I think about translating that to, you know, why are you moving? What's important to you? What is it about your current house that you don't like? Oh, it's in a different city. Got, got it. Or it's too small. It's too big. There's no garage. Whatever it is, right? Understanding kind of what that motive is. And again, if they say, you know what, we're, we're not really sure we're buying right now. We just kind of wanted to get a sense of the sense of the market feel. To really easy to say, no problem. I'll just start shooting you listings through the MLS or whatever. But what if you even ask the question? Is again, okay, why? What's the timing issue? What are you looking at? You know, why are you looking at all? And then being able to send them the right kind of stuff, or you know, see an opportunity, right? Uh, Yeah, my 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 aging mom is going to move in with us, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, if I find places that have a mother-in-law apartment attached to it, or a living garage, these I'm going to be able to say, hey, you may not have even thought of this, but here's something, and that's what clients really need. Typically, they're buying something and the reason they're working through a salesperson is because they lack expertise to make the proper decision for their needs. This is the true value we bring as salespeople is to be able to say, I'm going to save you the expense of making a mistake and a bad buying decision because I can recommend you in the right decision. The beauty of that is those clients never shop you. They're not going to leave you for a real estate agent that's offering a 1% less on the listing. They're not going to leave you for somebody else when they start valuing your expertise because that's too important to them. So the, the first step is to really understand that motivation and the background and what's going on. And it, it's, and that in itself builds rapport, not friends rapport. We're not going to go golfing, but it builds rapport in terms of, I start to trust you a little bit more and neuroscience tells us that trust is almost, it's 40% of the buying decision for most people, right? So it's almost half the buying decision literally comes down to, do I trust the person that I'm working with. Here's the beauty. The next 30% of the buying decision is feeling understood, which fuels trust. So if you make them talk and understand and you can, you know, verbalize back to them, here's what I'm hearing you saying. Here's what I think is important to you. And they say yes to both those. You are already at 70% of them making the buying decision just by getting those two things. Only 20% is the facts and the data and the actual, you know, details. And then the last 10% is just gaining commitment, which is a whole separate topic, right? Moving them to a yes or no and getting them out of maybe, right? Getting them out and just moving them to a yes or no, right? You want to make an offer on this house? Yes or no, not, well, we'll continue thinking about it because then you're going to lose it or you're just, if it's a slow market and houses aren't moving, they're going to be stuck forever in that decision, right? Help them move to this is not a fit or this is a fit. And that takes all the pressure out of it because you're looking for a decision, and all sales pressure comes from trying to push to yes, instead of trying to push to a yes or a no. Absolutely. I threw a lot of stuff out there. I don't know if that, if I know Okay. No, no, this is the topic.
1: It's fantastic. I think the interesting thing that I, I want to feel like everybody watching gets this, but everything you're saying is market proof, right? Like we're in, we're in what now is a heavy, heavy seller's market. There's very limited supply things are disappearing, everyone's freaking out, buyers are stressed, sellers are expecting a lot, all these things. But it doesn't really matter if it was a buyer's market, a seller's market, or otherwise. And whether you're talking to a buyer or a seller, all those principles are entirely the same relevance in whichever market you're in. And what, what you kind of touched on early, which I always joke about here is for some reason sales is not a course that's taught in university here in business schools. I don't know if it is in the states.
0: No, it's not. And there's a sales department in every single company, right? And there's you can't get a college degree in sales. It's it's insane. Blows my, my mind. It, yeah, it's it, it's totally insane. Yeah.
1: It's good though, because that means companies like yours are in even more demand that people need the help because they really don't know what they're doing. They put sales titles on themselves, but don't think beyond what they've seen in movies in a lot of cases. Correct.
0: And And they think sales is marketing and the missions are different, especially in a prospecting environment, right? So if you think the job of marketing is to supply information, but if you're prospecting your job in sales, your sales materials, your emails should not be about oversharing information because then they don't need to call you. Your job should be to cause a question that they have to reach out to you to get an answer to. Wait, what do you mean when you say this and this is going on? Because that engages the conversation and immediately puts you in the expertise advisor role, which is what you want. Mm-hmm. So, so the missions are completely different. And most universities say, well, we, we teach sales. We just, it's, you yeah, you know, yeah, I have a BS in marketing. Okay, great. Marketing is a necessary profession, right? Um, but it, it, it's it's not the same. And then you get that mixed up with the psychology. What you know, what you were talking about, you know, earlier, Katie, which is like, you know, we want to be their friends. People think that we want to be their friends. And I'm like, do you have to be friends with your surgeon in order to trust them to do a good job? On you know, do you have to be friends with your dentist? Do you have to be friends with your car? So why do we think we have to be friends with our salesperson, right? As another trainer I work with always says, is it's sales, not Tinder. We don't have to befriend people, right? <laughs> we want to be friendly and polite because that leads to trust building. But, but we, it's not necessarily about becoming their best friends. By all means, sell to your good friends. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't try to turn all your clients into best friends. And that was a mistake that I made early in my sales career. I was going to be the most likable guy possible and try to befriend people. And at some point, it started to feel a little bit like I was a stalker you know, trying to invite people to go golfing every weekend and do that kind of stuff. It's like, and then I realized one day I'm not going to buy, I'm not going to get my mortgage from this guy because we played nine rounds of golf on Sunday. I'm going to buy, I'm going to get my mortgage from because I trust him to advise me and to prevent me from making mistakes in the financing of my house. Right. So another mortgage broker can come along that I don't know and say, I'll do it for cheaper. And I'm like, that's all right. I'll stick with Justin because 5 years ago when I told Justin I wanted to go to a 100% LTV loan on my house to buy a boat, he went, "No, you don't." And I'm not doing that loan for you. You have to do it with somebody else because I'm not helping you commit financial suicide, right? So now I trust him. He's got my best interests even at heart even if it cost him a commission. That that's what you're looking for, right? That level of trust. We don't have to be best friends for that to happen, right? Absolutely.
1: It's true, too, because I, I don't want to be friends with my dentist. You use that like she always talks to me while her hands are in my mouth. And the last thing I want to be doing sure. is like, <laughs> just 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 give me the root canal or whatever. Right. Like, so, right. uh, yeah, no, you're bang on.
2: But that right. brings up a really good, interesting. Um, just the, I, I know we have a hard time a lot in real estate with friends and family who choose not to work with us. And Uh I'm always wondering what, and I think like for me, I just assume that they just don't want us in their business um, because they don't want to know the financial situation or whatever it is, but is there something else there? Like just as you're talking, I'm thinking maybe because we're friends and family, we don't offer any real advice or expertise to them. So when they're looking for somebody, they won't, they don't think we're going to be helpful. Is that kind of the way to think
0: about it. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's tied to something like that. Um, It's also tied to, um, sorry, my dog just decided to walk in and knock the door open with her head. (laughs) That scared me. Um, So, so I think it's partially that, but I think it comes down to truth telling, right? So all healthy relationships, think about all healthy personal or business relationships you have, have to have a basis of balance and equality in them. If one person is domineering in any form of a relationship, it's an unhealthy relationship, right? Be it a marriage or a business partnership, it doesn't matter. Same same thing. So how do we get this? We get this by truth telling, right? And, and the, the problem with the friendship piece is that if the friendship is at stake, right, um, it's kind of harder to tell them the truth. It's like, wait a minute, this is my best friend. Do I really want to tell them that buying this house is a stupid decision because they fell in love with the backyard, but the house is termite damage. How do I, how do I have that conversation? Right. So the, the challenge that people I think find, I think in real estate specifically, it's like, I don't know that I want to share all my personal financial information with one of my friends. Right. So, okay. There's an element of that. But, um, when I do post client surveys with my clients, it's, it's funny because, and it's actually morphed its way into my LinkedIn profile and my website advertising message, which is I tell people the hard truth. I get more compliments out of that. I get more CEOs to tell me, you know what? You were the first one that ever came in here and told me the truth, even if it was going to cost you the business. Other people tried to tell me what I wanted to hear. Well, then you're not an advisor. You're a cheerleader. Both are really good roles to play in people's lives. But in business, you need, in sales, you need to be the advisor, not the cheerleader. Right. So back to the mortgage example, how good of a mortgage broker is my mortgage broker if he lets me borrow up to 100 percent of the value on my house so I can go buy a boat? That's a bad financial decision. And he knows it. If my account's like, yeah, 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 go ahead. Cheat a little bit more on your taxes. Don't worry. You won't get caught. And I get caught. It's like how good of an account was he even if he was my friend? So you can do business with friends. But what I like to do is just get a disclaimer, and it sounds something like this, right? Hey, Daniel, looks like we're going to be working together. Listen, before we do so, I need your permission on something. Is it okay if I ask you permission on something? Yeah, I know. Typically, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. What, go what, for yeah, what you, it. Yeah. What do you? There's going to come a time in this transaction where you and I are going to disagree, and I'm going to have to tell you based on my expertise potentially that I don't agree with the decision that you're making. Now you have two choices here, right? You can tell me you're not comfortable with that, in which case. I really want to put you with somebody where that's not going to be an issue so that they can, they can tell you the truth because the last thing I want to see you is make a bad business decision. Right. But you and I have to have this upfront agreement here that it's going to be okay. Right. And that our friendship is separate from that and we'll survive that and not be, not be an issue going forward. Right. Um, Cause that's, Absolutely. that's a, that's a challenge if you, if you don't go there. And if you get that disclaimer, it doesn't mean that it'll necessarily work because a month down the line they may have forgotten about it. But at least you have something to point back to and say, "Well, Daniel, remember we agreed. I was going to tell you if I thought you were making a stupid decision. This is a stupid decision, right? That you're you're buying this emotionally right now, not logically. It's not what you need. You told me right, and you can go back to that kind of that kind of basis. Absolutely. Um, so. It, it, that's what gets in the way. You can't have an equal business relationship when one person is more at stake than the other. It's got to be level. The playing field has got to be level. And that makes for the best sales interactions, the most referrals, the lack of buyer's remorse or people trying to back out on deals at the last second. It eliminates a lot of that stuff, or at least dr- drastically reduces it because you're not dealing with those elements down the line. Absolutely. And, and you know what? A connect, an experience that I've had with Joey, the
1: guy who connected us uh-huh. who's one of my best uh-huh. friends in the world was exactly what you're saying, where the decision was made not to work together when he moved out of Toronto yep. and subsequently has turned into, I mean, his family referral business and all that, like the friendship is strong. Yep. I think it was established that that line probably was a tough one for us to cross and yeah. that was okay. Um, and we've, we've actually got, we've got a few questions now, but on this topic, um, yep. a question is being asked about, if it's possible or how you would self-diagnose when you're getting too close to that line between friendly and friend, like when you're falling into the friend zone with somebody. So let's say this isn't a friend of yours, but you're a personable person. You're having that good rapport. Is there a red flag or something that can trigger in your head? Uh Oh, I think I'm, I'm becoming their friend and not their, their realtor now. And I need to take a step back.
0: Well, the first red flag is you had that thought, right? (laughs) You asked yourself that question. That's red flag number one. And then red flag number two is think of the most unpleasant thing that you could say to them in, in, in terms of the business interaction. What's the hardest thing that I could say to them right now about how this deal is going? And am I willing to say that? And if you're not willing to say that, then I would say that's the, the second red flag. And you need to say, okay, I, I need, listen, great friendships will come. My best friend in the world, who's my business partner, um, you know, I I jokingly call him my work wife, right? Because the, the two of us are like, literally like, you know, morphed together. We've had all kinds of, you know, great experiences working together on long-term projects and everything else. And, and yeah, I, I, I don't know how to say this piece and, and have it. He, the one of the reasons he's that business partner and that friend for me is because he's one of the few people that can club me over the head with something and call me out on stuff of it. And my, my friendship is too valuable that I'm willing to discount it, but I also have tremendous respect for his expertise. And he was a boss of mine when we first met. I mean, the way we first met is I went to work for him. So personal relationships are going to develop out of your business and there's nothing wrong with that right what's wrong with that is getting overly involved with people in business when you can't tell the truth because trust is 40% of the sale what power's trust more than telling the truth think about our kids and everything else like what is more impactful from a trust building perspective than telling the truth. You'd much rather your kids show up and say, I accidentally set the garage on fire. My bad. Right. Than to pretend that it happened by itself and to continue lying about it, that, that piece of it. So translate that to business. Yeah. You're going to get some friendships that come out of business relationships and that's okay. But again, in my case, my closest friend, who is also my business partner, part of that relationship is the fact that he can absolutely say, Hey, that was a really bad decision. It impacted the business this way. It was the wrong way to respond to that situation. You're letting your emotions get in the way of your logic and calculating what you should have done here. This was a bad call. And I have to go, okay, even if I don't agree with him, I have to at least respect where he came from and giving me that mm-hmm. advice. Except most of the time he was right when he calls me on stuff. It was, a, you know, I did make a bonehead move, right? And, and I needed to be called on it. So I think a lot of people, by the way, get married to that person like they date all kinds of different people, but the person they end up marrying, at least from my perspective, is the person who calls them on all their stuff because the trust that gets built from that allows you to build a life together, right? Mm-hmm. So the same same concept at play. That's really smart.
2: Um, so shifting to some common objections that we get in real estate, I think the biggest one is obviously commission. When we go into a listing presentation, how much are you going to charge? Um, Is there any advice that you would give? I mean, I think we try to justify our value through these services that we typically offer to our sellers, but is there anything else that we can look to to help convince the seller why we're charging what we're charging?
0: So this is not going to be a popular answer, but it is absolutely the truth answer, right? Here's my disclaimer. Here's an example of a disclaimer before I tell somebody the truth, right? Here's the actual answer to this. Everything else I've tried has failed. This is what I've landed on. Don't ever defend or justify your price.
2: Hmm. Don't
0: ever defend or justify your price. Yeah, I charge 3%. Well, how come you say, listen, you get what you pay for. I charge 3%. I have a ton of clients. I bring a lot of value. If you don't think I'm going to justify the value of that 3%, then maybe I'm not the right choice for you to work with as a real estate agent. By the way, if they start negotiating with you on price, you don't have them yet. So you're not losing anything by saying that. They're not your customer yet. If they were your customer, they would already be agreed to the terms and everything else. They would have signed the listing agreement, right? So Mm -hmm. you're in one of two places. You either don't believe that you justify the value that you charge, which I would say is a problem that you need to address first and foremost, right? Either by supplying more things so that you're comfortable that you supply that value. Or if you can't get there, then by finding something else to do for a living, because if you don't feel like you justify value, that's going to get in the way of everything, right? Or -hmm. if you believe it, you're not willing to defend it. And then how much do you really believe it? And it calls it back into doubt. Don't justify your price. On top of that, Mm -hmm. in the real estate industry, it's pretty standard. It's not yeah. like, you know, it's pretty standard. But listen, there's sales trainers that charge $200,000 for a seminar and others that charge $2,000 for a seminar. And really the only difference that I've seen in some of the stuff that I've gone to is the self-belief and the perspective that they have and the value that they bring. Now, if nobody will buy from you, your price is too high. There's no doubt about it, right? But if you're getting people that are buying from you and some people start bringing up the price objection, I wouldn't defend the price. I would just say, you know, okay, well, th- this is the, the price that I work at. This is how it's structured. Tell me why you have concerns and what you're trying to do. And you may have a situation where, you know, they're almost losing money on the house, not in this seller's market, obviously. But, you know, th- th- there, there may be some viable justifications as to why you re- need to reduce the price. Um, but just think, I mean, I, my real estate agents that I've worked with, I know I could do a lot of the stuff that they do. But honestly, what they charge me to do it is less than what I value my hours to be able to do it, other things, and it's not what I enjoy doing. I can design a website on Wix or Squarespace pretty easily. There's nothing that's more frustrating for me – well, that's, that's not true, but there's very few things that are so frustrating for me than designing a website. I would much rather part with the money and have somebody else do it for me. If the price gets too high, yeah, I don't value it that much, right? But it, it's also – but don't, don't start getting into a, a justifying or defending your price and that's tough. You go, oh, I might lose the client. My response is you don't have them yet if they're negotiating on price. Right. And so, so, okay. You're just new. You're brand new. You're starting out. You want to drop to get some clients and some referral, build your referral base. I get it. That's marketing costs as far as I'm concerned. Right. But when you get past a certain point, you have to believe that you're worth what you're charging. And if you don't, that's the core issue to address. Cause that's what we refer to as head trash in the, uh, in the sales uh, development industry, right? And say so you got some head trash on there. Got to get that out of your head, right? You're either worth it or you're not. If you're not, change it. If you are worth it, don't defend the price. Just, it is what yeah. it is, right? And it's Absolutely. okay, Katie. Maybe, maybe it doesn't make sense for us to work together. If you want to go for, if all you want to do is listen on the MLS, you don't even need a real estate agent last time I checked, right? You just, there are services now that'll put it up there for $500, so, so, so go, but you're not going to get top dollar for your house. It's not going to be. And and I know real estate agents provide a lot of value, right? I, the ones I've worked with have helped me, you know, yeah, yeah, listen, it's worth putting a brand new roof on it and taking that objection completely off the table when the house is for sale. Awesome. Right? I, I trust their expertise. So their expertise, what's it worth?
1: Well, and, and that speaks just like you said, if you can develop the trust ahead of time where they are already bought into who you are and what you're offering, it makes that part of the conversation less of a pitch and more of a fact of the matter of, of, yeah. of how things work. Yep. Um, plus, with I mean, in every industry, when you start discounting and pe- people talk, it becomes a real dangerous road you force yourself into for when you get the referral and the next person calls and says, hey, I heard you charge 1%. I heard you charge one and a half, whatever. How do you get them back up to what your true worth is at that point? So mm-hmm. um, going back to what you were talking about, another big change in every industry, but definitely in real estate, is with technology and even demographics of, I mean, I'll, I'll call millennials for what they are. I think we might, I don't even know. We established we are or we're not millennials We're right on the cusp. So I'm not knocking them. But the reality is, There is a lot more out there that people feel they can do themselves. And a lot of the people that are being pitched and being, especially as new buyers or first time sellers, these are people in their early to mid thirties, late twenties. And the ability of a realtor who's got that old school mentality to sell their value to these people has become a little bit more difficult because a lot of these people will say, I can do that. I can do that. Or they come into it with the mindset of, "Why am I paying somebody to do all this stuff that's a few clicks away?"
0: Uh-huh.
1: As somebody who understands, you know, all our whole industry, who realize the value we bring, and want to be able to articulate that to somebody who maybe, as we listen to them, we're establishing that their big, uh, their big, I guess, what, what would you call it? Their objection is, "Yeah, but you're expensive, and I can do most of this myself." Yep. Where's the psychology there and where do you tap in to what these people are thinking and get them to understand?
0: Yeah. So the, typically there are some things that they can do themselves, but when they sit, bring up that objection, they're not seeing the full scope of the services that you provide. So I'll tell you a little story. I spent some time uh, managing the sales force for a landscaping company. Um, it wasn't residential. It was, all we did was commercial properties, right? Apartment buildings, office complexes, those kinds of things. Now, I don't remember the prices, so I'm just making up the numbers. But let's say we charged, you know, $200 a square yard for mulch. And the, and the guy's looking at it and he's like, I can go get that at Home Depot for 25 bucks a square yard, right? Uh, so, so we were in the middle of negotiating this contract. And I was working with this rep who was a little bit new and I was showing him how to do this. And the guy brought up, he's like, hey, I'm seeing on your proposal, you guys have like $200 a square yard for mulch. And I mean, that's, you know, that's like $29.99 at Home Depot. Right. So the temptation is to try to fight them. Right. And start saying, no, 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 here's the value that I provide. The better option is to just start asking questions so they can realize how complicated it is. So what I did in front of that sales rep is I just said, yeah, no problem. Yeah, you're right. It's way cheaper at Home Depot. So, okay, great. So you're going to get that at Home Depot. We'll go ahead and take that off the proposal. Hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. Where are you going to have it delivered? What do you mean? Where are you going to have it delivered? well, I don't know, here in the parking lot. Okay, well, red mulch will stain concrete for like up to three years, all right? So just make sure that when they deliver it, they put like a tarp underneath there and then make sure they have the pallet stacked up too high because the bags will sometimes... Also, you're going to want to... Um, you guys aren't getting rid of these bushes, right? No. Okay, so make sure that when you guys put it in, Make sure that you wrap the bushes and pull them in that direction and tarp them in that direction. Also, you're going to want to make sure you protect the wall so that it doesn't stain the wall. Right. And I started asking questions and asking questions. How are you going to do this? You're going to do that. Yeah. Okay. You guys have a crew that can handle it. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And we started asking questions. We were not three minutes into it where the guy went, you know what, maybe, maybe you guys could just do the mulch for us. Right. And I was like, "Uh, sure, whatever you want, man. You want us to do it? Uh, We'll put it back in. Right. So I didn't fight the initial push. What I did was start asking questions that made him realize the full complexity. You are not paying for the mulch. You're paying for the Mm -hmm. mulch to be delivered, properly installed, not damage your bushes, your parking lot, or your building, and Mm -hmm. not create additional issues that you're going to deal with. And you're actually adding
1: value in in the questions you were asking. You were still, even if he chose to go the other way, you educated him with things he didn't know, which is a really great thing.
0: But what I was scoping for was he doesn't have the budget for mulch, in which case, fine, go to Home Depot. Right. Uh, that's fine. Or he has the budget and he doesn't understand the complexity of doing this right. And my crew has the expertise to be able to do it right. The Home Depot guys are going to show up with a big truck. They're going to dump it off. They're probably going to do it on a Saturday, which means it's are going to sit there for two days in the rain, stay in the parking lot. Right. So. You guys have equivalents of this in the real estate business, right? There are aspects in the contract that people don't know. There's aspects on listings that they don't know. You have access to some information that they don't have, but you certainly have access to the interpretation of that information with your expertise that they don't have because you're doing what? How many transactions a year? And, And most people who are buying a home, the... They're not doing this like multiple times a year. They're not even doing it once a year, right? So you have the expertise, start asking them questions. You'll be surprised at how quickly they go. Well, maybe you could just do that for us, right? <laughs> cause, cause, you know, and, and then again, the key is act completely detached emotionally from the outcome. Oh yeah. No, you want to, you want to listen on the MLS yourself. No problem. Now, you're going to do that. And how are you going to, and okay. And are you going to post it on some sites and how are you going to make sure that it stands out? And are you going to market it on Facebook? Are you going to put, right. And so uh, pretty soon they're like, ah, oh, this is a lot of work. Yeah. That's the value we provide for the dollars that you give us. If it was no work, we wouldn't be able to charge what we charge for it. There's value in the expertise and the work, not to mention doing it wrong. Right. In the landscape example, it's like, not only there's work to it, but then if you do the work incorrectly, there's more work that's stacked on top of that, and more expense that's stacked on top of that. I'm telling you, it was three and a half minutes of me asking questions before he went. Uh, you, maybe you guys could just throw the mulch back, and and you know it would have, And at that point, I could have said it's two twenty-five a yard, and he probably would have went okay, right? I could have actually raised the price on. But the sales rep walked away from that. And it's like well, you didn't really try to convince him. No, correct, because I understand people typically convince themselves. Nobody argues with their own data. So guess what? Once he's decided it's worth spending 200 to not have to deal with all those headaches, nobody's talking him out of it because he has made that decision as my client and I'm being helpful and advisory in my capacity as a salesperson to help guide him through the process.
2: That's really, I really like that. And just being detached from that whole, that's so important because I think we go all in to like these, uh, client meetings and just like, you know, if we don't get it, it's the end of the world, but getting that, I, I, feel, I and people probably feel that too, when you're detached, it's like, you know, take it or leave it. Like I'll, I'll, I'll help you out or not, but yep. um, yeah. So that's, that's really important. I, another, an acronym thing, bef-
0: sorry, before you yeah. move on from that, there's an acronym the I like to use called ADI. Okay. Mm-hmm. A stands for, if you guys want to write this down, this is like this is like you know, ten thousand dollars of sales training in like 30 seconds or less, right? <laughs> A stands for abundance, the attitude that there's plenty of fish in the sea. And if this client doesn't do business with you, there will be another one down the road that will. Abundance creates detachment. You don't need to be laser locked, you're not chasing the prom queen. There's plenty of other people out there who'll do business with you so you can be detached and not be eager beaver like the cartoon dog, huh? Spike, ha. Huh, huh, huh? You wanna, you wanna, you know, you're not that character because you're detached. And that creates I, which is intent. Your intent is to help them. If they will not let you help them, your detachment allows you to walk away. And that's okay because you've got the attitude of abundance, abundance, detachment, and intent. That's the mindset you want on all those three things. If you can get that sales becomes easy because when somebody goes, no, you go, all right, that's all right. I'm probably not somebody I could help. And There's another there's another one coming. And we all know this because when we were young and we asked that first person to dance and they said, no, we didn't go. Well, I guess I'll be single for the rest of my life and never dance with anybody. We went, you know what? I'm just going to ask somebody else at a later time and eventually I'll find somebody. Right. So that attitude translates through everything and permeates everything in your sales approach. And you become sincere and much more attractive as an advisor and as a business person, because people go, well, this person is not desperate for my business, which creates suspicion and, and doubt mm. and defense mechanisms. Right. So sorry, I just wanted to hit that. Go ahead. No, you.
2: no, 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 no. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that. That's really important. Um, so I know we're coming up to 12 and I want to be respectful of your time. So we'll try to wrap things up. One more question right. I had was another common objection we got or not objection, but I guess a situation we run into is when sellers have a certain expectation of price. I mean, on this market, it's not so much of an issue because prices are just going crazy. But there are instances where a seller sees what's going on and they're like, I need this amount for my home and they're nowhere close to what the house is actually worth. How do you suggest that we can convince or help people understand the true value of their house? Mm,
0: Yeah, Um, you know, it's it's a great question. And it's a question, by the way, that translates to virtually every industry, even outside of real estate, right? False expectations, just non-realistic expectations. So the first thing I would do is I would assume that you're not gonna get that client right? Because if, if they're way off, I mean, if you know, there's no way they're getting a million dollars for the house, insisting that they get a million dollars for the house is just going to let the house sit on the market longer, which is going to create the perception that there's something wrong with the house, even if there isn't right. And it's going to, it's going to, it's going to deflate from there. Whereas we all know, well, not we all know, but I know from being educated by real estate agents that if I think my house is worth $700,000 and I listed it, 695, I'm actually likely to get escalating offers and go above the 700 that I would have listed as. Right. So, but it's hard to educate them on that piece. So, the detachment piece comes in. First of all, you have to tell yourself in your mind, I've probably lost this client and it's okay, but I'm still going to tell them the truth. Right. And then you have to ask questions of how they would solve the problem. So, where I would go from there is I would say, Katie, based on every indicator that I have, based on my experience, based on talking to my colleagues, I think the house. Would get offers at eight twenty-five. At nine twenty-five, I think you're going to sit here and you're not going to get offers. Okay, so help me out. What can we do to be able to get you that nine hundred twenty-five thousand? what What would you suggest we start, or, or do you want some suggestions? Right. Well, you know, the roof is kind of old. We should put a new roof on it. Okay, well, that's $50,000 for the new roof, okay? And again, by complicating the issue, what they're probably going to realize is, yeah, if I drop another 200,000, I can get another 100,000 asking, what's the logic in doing that, right? But you have to accept first and foremost, going into that conversation, that there are two potential outcomes. They're going to get it or they're not going to get it. And if they don't get it, I think you're wasting your time taking them as a client. You're going to do a lot of work that you're going to end up not getting compensated for let somebody else be the bearer of bad news. Let them go to another agent. Tell them the truth now, right? So that when they look back in a year and their house hasn't sold, they go, Katie was the only one that told me the truth. Mm-hmm. Katie was the only one that told me the truth. And that's a great time to reapproach them and say, hey, I noticed it didn't happen. What's going on? Is there anything I can do to help? Not, I told you, give me the listing. That's not what they want (laughs) to hear, right? But I would say, hey, look, I noticed it didn't work out, blah, blah, blah. Is there anything I can do to help, right? But probably what they're going to do at that point is go through four or five agents. And those agents are the ones that did a whole bunch of work for free, and you're not it. You have a limited amount of time to spend with clients. It is the only resource we cannot duplicate more of is time, right? So knowing that, you are, wa- you are walking away from a client that was going to be a negative ROI for you based on your investment of time and expense compared to being able to make the deal. Would you rather do that up front or would you rather go through four months of pain before you do that? I know what my answer is, right? Super simple, easy answer. For me, it's, it's obvious. I, I'd rather you tell them the truth and you'll never have to apologize for telling them the truth. Now, yeah. you may be wrong. They may come back and say, ha Katie, we sold it for nine twenty-five. told you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you eat a little crow, but if you're confident in your diagnosis, which I would imagine in this scenario, you are, you're probably not going to be put in that situation. And then they're going to look back and go, you know what, that was the only one that told me the truth. And you may never know, but one day, one of their best friends say, Hey, I'm thinking about either this agent or that agent. And they're going to say, go with Katie Mm because she actually understands pricing correctly. And she told me the truth. And I messed up by not going with her and following her advice. Right. You owe them the truth. I really believe this. What's given sales a bad name is people not telling their clients the truth and letting their clients make mistakes that could have been avoided. Real estate's definitely an example of that because you're looking at a client base that is not doing business in that scope all the time. They're coming into this industry as a consumer and they don't have the expertise. Tell them the truth, even if it costs you the business. Why? Because you have an attitude of abundance, detachment, and intent ties right back to that ADI. And when you do that, even if you don't get the gig, you'll feel good about what happened. And I I think karma comes around and you'll get more business in the long-term out of it. The number of hours you would have spent with that client trying to come up with new things and do, you know, open houses that nobody shows up to and do like all this other number of hours compared to spending those hours on clients that will actually listen to you and take your advice. It's okay. You have my permission as a sales expert, to fire clients that will not cooperate with you. I hereby give you my blessing to say, it's not you, it's, it's not me, it's you. I don't think this is going to work. It's okay. Thank you. Have a nice day. Walk away politely, but walk away when they won't cooperate or listen to your expertise. Because you'll get the blame if you go the other direction and the house still doesn't sell, they're going to blame you right? If you try to sell it at that price and it doesn't sell, they're going to blame you no matter how much. So you owe them the truth and it's okay because you have an attitude of abundance. There's more clients coming down the street. Absolutely.
1: Okay. We're about to close. I want to close on this though, because there's a few comments that are sort of centering around the same thing. And I think it serves this conversation well to end with a bit of a, I guess, a message of motivation for everybody, because we are We're in an industry here in Toronto. I mean, there's literally, what is it? 60, 65,000 agents. Like my neighbor and his neighbor is probably an agent, just the way things are here. So competition is high. However, not 60,000 people are listening to this conversation. And I can tell you 10%, if that, actually subscribe to the sorts of things you're talking about right now. So from, from a little message of hope to those of us in the industry who feel like there's not enough to eat and that the abundance part of the ADI might be something that's hard for them to grasp onto because let's be honest. I mean, there's tons of people and a limited number of transactions. How can we close for everybody to give them that great warm feeling about how they can take this message and go out there and know that first of all, it's okay to walk away from things and there's still plenty to eat out there for them. Mm -hmm. And, and second of all, You know, they're they're the ones that are putting themselves in a position to win those competitions without having to feel like they're always being threatened by the
0: person next to them. Yeah. There may not be an abundance of business in the sense that there's, you know, so many listings that everybody's just, you know, getting. But I'll tell you what else there's not an abundance of competent real estate agents, competent doctors, competent nurses, competent policemen, firemen, you name it. Right. There's not an abundance of people that are going to tell clients the truth. And I had the exact same doubts in my mind. Oh, my God, there's 100,000 sales training companies when I started my company, right? It's just, I mean, you know, and I work with some of them and I've referred business to some of them. And it's like there's this and there's the tape sets and Tony Robbins does a motivational seminar for a weekend in Florida and charges like $100,000 to be there. How am I, you know, um, but what there isn't is, again, an abundance of people that do it right. And so if you do it right, and I, I have a certain faith here that I just accept, if I do it right, I'm going to get so much referral business that it typically works out in the, in the long end. I'm still not going to win some accounts. Let's be realistic, right? If Katie was my sister and you guys were competing for my listing, you could be four times as competent as she is. I'm probably with going with Katie because she's my sister. So your job when we're having this, conver- this conversation is to quickly determine that and say, next. OK, um, if you guys all take a piece of paper and write the letters SW and then underneath them, write the letters SW and then underneath that, write the letters SW and then draw a line and underneath that draw N, the letter N. And here's what it stands for. Some will, some won't. So what? Next. <laughs> That's it. Love right. It. Accept that as a mantra and free yourself from the pressure of saying, I've got to get this person in front of me. And if that example is not stirring, here's one that will make perfect sense. If you walk into a bar as a single person and look around the room and find one person at the bar and say, I'm going to get them to go out with me, you are probably going to get kicked out of the bar by security by the time you're done harassing and stalking this person, right? Versus if you walk in and say, my job here is not to find one person and convince them. It's literally to look at the room and see who's available and see who's a match from a personality, whatever else perspective, right? And make sure that I talk to them and it just, it just works out. So yeah, there might be 65,000 agents. How many of them are doing this full time? How many of them have the number of years of experience that you do? How many of them have the referral network that you do? How many of them have that now as a follow-up to that, to help yourself go on LinkedIn, contact every single one of your ex clients and get them to give you a recommendation. Not that BS endorsement thing where they go, yeah, Daniel is good at sales. No, right? The written, in, the written recommendation piece, okay? Go, go on that. When I get asked by a question by a client, a prospective client, and they say, why should we hire you? I say, I'm not going to answer that question. I'll send you to the answer. Here's a link to my LinkedIn profile. Go look at my 35 plus recommendations on there. Let my clients tell you why you should hire me. That's more compelling. Of course, I think you should hire me. I'm me. I'm the direct beneficiary. I'm a suspect witness. Go talk to non-suspect witnesses, right? Build up those those things. Ask people for referrals. Here's an interesting stat for you. 91% of people when surveyed said they would give a referral. Do you know what percentage of salespeople ask for one? 11. 11% of salespeople ask for referrals, even though 91% of people when surveyed said they would give one if asked. Right Now, a referral is not, hey, Daniel, you know anybody who wants to list a house today that you could sign up so I can make money? No. right. A referral is more than telling you, hey, Daniel, do you have any friends who are looking right now? Do you have any friends who are looking to sell, looking to move, looking to thing, right? Is there anybody else on your Or, hey, Daniel, I noticed this person over here is searching for these things. Is there a way you could provide us an introduction, right? That's, that's a proper referral versus, hey, Daniel, help me. Help me make money. Send me business my way. That's too much pressure on my referral person, right? Uh, ask for intros to specific people, connections to specific people, but also, you know, uh, there's a real estate agent here in my town. He makes a flyer every time somebody he sold the house for, he has them write them a recommendation. He goes around, he drops one of those flyers in all the mailboxes in the neighborhood. That's smart, right? Doesn't cost him much money to do that. I think he gets his 14 year old son to run around on a bicycle and put all the flyers in the mailboxes. So he didn't have to take the time to do it. You know, he, I mean, after about the like tenth time that I have one, there's like, "This guy's a pretty good real estate agent. He's got a lot of people that are recommending him, right?" That said, it was great to work with him. Much better than the billboard, which is paid advertising. They know it's coming from you. Your third party clients telling them makes ma- makes you know it's the concept of persuasion. Is that is that that uh, consensus concept of persuasion that when there's a crowd consensus on something, people are more comfortable making a judgment call based on that. So leverage your referrals, leverage your introductions. Go get those recommendations on LinkedIn. They make a difference, not just the quick fire, the ones that are actually written out. Um, I will often send one to a client. I'll say, hey, I wrote up a recommendation based on our experience. Would you feel okay editing it and putting it on, on the profile? And sometimes they cut and paste it verbatim to what I put and put it on their profile. And other times they edit it a little bit. I do the work for them to make it easier. But you know. there's not an abundance of people that are competent and good at their jobs. All you have to do is look around at the state of the world to realize how true that is, right? How much incompetence is floating around everywhere around us. When you're good at it and you pass the word around, that business will come to you. People will gravitate to you. Because correct me if I'm wrong, Daniel, but it's not like all 65,000 get one 65,000th of the business, right? The business is not spread out equally. It's spread based on competence, referral, those kinds of things. Um, and, and you have to have faith in that outright faith in that you'll find that it's true. It really comes down. And it, if it's not happening, you're not making enough noise with it. That's really what it comes down to. Not enough people are finding out about you. So pass the word, find ways to pass the word, whether it's a flyer or LinkedIn or a podcast or whatever, just find ways to get the word out and, and about, about the good job that you're doing and use your client's own words to be able to publicize yourself. It's much more compelling than when you say I'm great, right? Nobody likes I'm great. Everybody trusts. He is great. Even if I'm actually financially motivated, everybody trusts that. Right. So cool. the science is pretty clear on that.
1: Let, let me use that as the perfect way to say you're great. So to, ev- <laughs> so to everybody I who's that up, listening I? and, yeah. oh yeah, that was a layup. Um, <laughs> but to everybody who's listening, watching, we're going to definitely make all your coordinates available so that people can find you. But before yep. we let you go, uh, remind everybody, your company, where they can reach out to you, because I do think we've just touched the tip of the iceberg here with the sorts of advice you could offer to sales professionals, and we want to make sure they can find you.
0: Sure, uh, and I will. I will put the disclaimer that my company is more oriented at corporate sales environment than at real estate. Although I've worked with some real estate agents and real estate companies uh, as clients as well. Uh, salesfix is s a uh, l e s f i x x dot com. It's Salesfix with two x's dot com. Uh, or my LinkedIn profile with my name, it is not hard to find me on LinkedIn. I believe it's me and a Canadian hockey player that have the same name. Apart from that, you won't find any other Julian Rekesines on there. And I think he has an S on the end of his scene, uh, distant cousin of some sort. Um, more French. More French. Yeah, more, more French. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, you find me on LinkedIn. And then uh, between that and my website, you'll find links to the podcast, to subscribing to my weekly email that I send out. Again, all of that. I say subscribing, but it's all free. Um, I put a lot of content out there. I'm always happy to chat or exchange messages on LinkedIn or connect. Um, and I will point people to a couple of resources that I think that I'm not financially tied to, but I think are great. If you, um, if you go on Google or YouTube and search out the six principles of persuasion by an expert called, uh, Robert Chialdani, it's spelled C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I. He has this great little video, little animated video that goes through this concepts of scarcity, reciprocity, um, although it's and it's really enlightening because he's not pitching it from a sales perspective. It's just human neuroscience, but it's fascinating. Um, And in my absolutely favorite book, and it's, it's, it's literally sitting right there, that's the yellow book you see behind me, is a book called The Sandler Rules. The Sandler Sales Organization is an organization I've worked and partnered with a number of times. And The Sandler Rules is boiled down concepts, psychological framing concepts, right? It's things like... The pros- the problem the prospect brings you is never the real problem. Sales is a Broadway play performed by a psychiatrist. It's it's forty nine like blurbs and explanations behind him. Super simple to read. Um, a- author's name is Mattson, who he's the president of the Sandler Sales Organization. M A T T S O N. Both those resources, I think, if you're serious about working in the sales or business development area, are things that you should you should look at because they're really compelling and understanding why people think the way they do. And specifically the Sandler Rules, the author, David Sandler, um, was, I think, by trade, a clinical psychologist and just applied it to sales. And again, that's that's what I base everything I do on is understanding the human neuroscience behind what's going on and using that as a map to navigate, right? Versus saying, I'm going to do the double left-handed turkey clothes, which... It, it, it doesn't work. And in the long term, none of that stuff works. They're gimmicks. Stay away from gimmicks and stay, stay framed around proper sales psychology because, uh, and human psychology because that's rock solid foundation. It's how humans you know, interact. We're all different, but we have a very common psychological you know, base or foundation that we're all working off of.
2: That's great. Thank you so much. Written all that down, we'll make sure to add everything to the show notes. And thank you again, Julian. We really appreciate your time. It was really, really informative.
0: My pleasure, my pleasure. And again, open invite to link in with me. Um, I'm, I'm always happy to, you know, to to have quick conversations or quick blurbs or answer quick questions on LinkedIn. It's a, it's a great, uh, great platform. So awesome. So, thank, thank you, you. so much again.
2: Thank you. Have a good day.
0: You too. Woo! Level up... never, 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 up, never, up, never, 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 never,